Good morning, everyone. The reading today is from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 through 18. 4 through 6 are just for context. And such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from us, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the marvelous revelation of your glory that comes with the gospel, with the good news of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the things into which angels long to look that are now revealed to us, Lord. We thank you that we have an inheritance that is undefiled and unfading, Lord, an immortal inheritance in Christ. Lord, we pray that this time would be exalting to you, that it would fill our hearts with great joy uh, to see the wonder of the promises that are ours in Christ um, and the, the betterness of our covenant, as Hebrews talks about, Lord. We thank you. Uh, we pray that you would bless Tom's words to us today. Bless our hearts to hear them. In your name we pray. Amen. Good morning. As I mentioned last time, we're in a section of this letter that uh, has had a profound impact on me personally, and I, I continue to pray that it will have a similar impact on each of you when it comes to your confidence that you have been enabled by God to do eternally significant things in the lives and hearts of other people. This morning's message is the second uh, in in a series of three messages that addresses a critically important question that Paul presented in chapter 2, verse 16. <laughs> the answer to that question is bedrock to you and me, just as it was for Paul and his co-workers. What is that question? Well, I'm going to go back to verses 14 to 16 
of chapter 2 for a second. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And then Paul poses the question, and who is adequate for these things. Who is adequate for these things? What was it that made Paul and his co-workers adequate, sufficient to be led as co-victors with Christ in Christ's own parade of triumph? Always and in every place. What made them adequate to be, quote, the sweet aroma of the knowledge of God in every place. What gave Paul the, the great confidence that he expresses at the beginning of chapter 3 that he needed no letter of commendation to the Corinthians or from the Corinthians because they themselves were his letter written by God on the hearts of men, human hearts. The answer to all these questions, beloved, is the same for you and me who belong to Christ as it was for Paul and Timothy, and Silas, and Titus. God's answer to the question, who is adequate for these things, is that we are. But that adequacy is not in any way because of anything that comes from us. Last time in chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, and I had, I had my brother include these verses even though we're officially starting at verse 7 in this passage. But 4 through 6 is a hinge in this chapter. And in those verses, Paul said, this, he provided this magnificent promise that God gives to all who trust in Jesus. He said, and such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Godward confidence. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God who made us adequate, that's past tense, made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. God intends for all of us who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ to know, to know that He has made us adequate to serve as ministers of the new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ, and that that adequacy is not in any way, in any form, from us. The Holy Spirit who dwells within us, He is our adequacy. He is all the adequacy that we will ever have. He is all the adequacy that we will ever need. This is as big as big gets for us as Christians. This is as practical as practical gets. It tells us exactly what we need to know to put both feet into God's assignment to each of us and to all of us together to proclaim Christ and to show Christ off in this world with very great boldness, which is what Paul's real exhortation in this passage is. 
In this morning's passage, Paul continues to expand marvelously on the ramifications of this adequacy, this sufficiency that all of God's redeemed ones have received from God. In chapter 3, verses 7 through 18, the facet of our God-given adequacy upon which Paul focuses his attention is the glory, the glory that God now displays in people like us. Now, I love the fact that this morning, glory was such a, marvel, uh, such a strong focus of our worship. that God orchestrates these things much better than I ever could. Paul uses the word glory 13 times in verses 7 to 18. 13 times. So we probably need to know what that word means, right? The root meaning of the Hebrew Old Testament word for glory is weight. W-E-I-G-H-T, weight. The root meaning of the Greek New Testament word for glory is a display of light, radiance, brightness, splendor. That progression of meaning from Old to New Testament is no, New Testament is no accident. <laughs> the word glory, when applied to God where it belongs, refers both to the intrinsic weightiness and magnificence of God's nature and character and ways, and at the same time refers to the display of that magnificence in his creation. The God who is glorious in and of himself is glorified. His glory is demonstrated and displayed when who he is is manifested. That display is what Paul is talking about throughout this morning's passage. He's talking about the weightiness of who God is put on bright display through earthen vessels like you and me. And he's going to continue that, that same thought when we come into, into chapter 4. In verses 7 to 16, Paul brilliantly uh, he brilliantly expands on what he just said in verses 4 through 6, that God has made us adequate, not as servants of the old covenant, but as servants or ministers of the new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. We need to know what that means, and that's what we're going to be talking about. Picking up on that last declaration, Paul now drives home the superior glory of our new covenant ministry through three contrasts between three contrasts between the ministry of the old covenant and the ministry of the new picking up on that same declaration he starts in verses 7 through 8 what I'm going to do is go, I'll show you the three contrasts and we'll go back and talk talk about them don't try to write them all down right now cuz they'll be up up here again okay the first is if the ministry of death had glory how much more does the ministry of the spirit Second, if the ministry of condemnation had glory, how much more does the ministry of righteousness? And finally, if that which fades away had glory, how much more does that which remains? First, in verses 7 and 8, if the ministry of death had glory, how much more does the ministry of the Spirit? And each of these contrasts, Paul's essential point is that if the ministry of the Old Covenant, in spite of the God-ordained limitations of that covenant, 
still displayed the glory of God? How much more does our ministry as servants of the new covenant display the glory of God? First, if the ministry of death, and he says, in letters engraved on stone, had glory, how much more does the ministry of the Spirit? Now, you might think he should say, if the ministry of death had glory, how much more does the ministry of life? But he juxtaposes death with the Spirit. It's very interesting. Again, remember in verse 6, he contrasted the letter with the Spirit. The letter is the Old Testament law. In verses 2 and 3, he told the Corinthians that they were a letter of Christ, cared for by Paul and his co-workers. Not, not written with ink, but written with the Spirit of the living God. And then he said, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Now, what letter, guys, what letter did God write on tablets of stone? The Ten Commandments. And that, those two tablets served as the outline, if you will, the template for all of the detail that we find in the Law of Moses. Here in verse 7, when Paul refers to the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones, he's talking again about the Old Covenant. The law whose essence was given, to God, uh, given by God to Moses in letters engraved on stones. Way back in Exodus 19 and 20, after Yahweh delivered the Israelites from Egypt through ten mighty miracles and escorted them through the midst of the Red Sea on dry ground, they reached, them, they reached the foot of Mount Sinai. And there, at Sinai, God declared His covenant with Israel and He spoke the Ten Commandments to them. Then in Exodus 24, verse 12, God said to Moses, Moses, come up to me on the mountain and remain there, and I will give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandment which I have written for Israel's instruction. And Moses did as Yahweh commanded. He, Yahweh called Moses to come by himself into the midst of the cloud of God's own glory at the top of that mountain. Joshua stayed partway up the mountain. It was just Moses that went into the presence of God. During the 40 days and 40 nights that Moses was on that mountaintop with God, God revealed to him the Torah, the instruction that Moses was then to deliver to the Israelites encamped at the foot of the mountain. At the end of the 40 days and 40 nights, Moses came down from the mountain carrying two stone tablets bearing the Ten Commandments. And according to Exodus 30, 32, verses 15 and 16, the writing on those two tablets was, quote, on both sides. You don't usually get to see it that way. On both sides. And the tablets were God's work and the writing was God's writing engraved on the tablets. But of course, what Moses found when he returned from the mountaintop to the camp of Israel prompted him to shatter those two tablets into pieces. Even though the, the cloud of fire, uh, the cloud and fire, I should say, of God's glory and presence had been visible to the Israelites at the top of the mountain the whole time that Moses was up there, the same cloud that had 
led them through the Red Sea. That wasn't enough for them. They persuaded Aaron to take all the gold, the, the gold jewelry that God had handed to them as the spoils of a battle in which they didn't, wage, they didn't wield a single weapon. God's victory over Egypt, the spoils of that battle they used to create an idol, a golden calf. And by the way, they called it Yahweh. And they said, this is the God that delivered us up out of Egypt. They offered sacrifices to the calf while they threw a drunken, debauched party that the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 likens to the pagan sacrificial feasts of his own day. They were not pretty. In effect, Israel's first response to the law of God after hearing the Ten Commandments proclaimed by the very voice of God that they then were afraid to hear anymore, their first response to the law of God was to reject it and replace it. Even as God was graciously revealing the detail of that law to Moses and engraving the heart of that law on stones by God's own finger, the Israelites were busily violating the first two commandments. You shall have no other gods before me and you shall make no likeness of me in the form of any created thing. What was the outcome for Israel? Well, in considerable measure, death. God commissioned the Levites on that day to kill 3,000 Israelites. And then he very mercifully stopped that. That event was the seed form of all that the Bible presents about the impact of the law of Moses on humanity. That was merely the first of very many episodes of severe and often fatal judgment that God inflicted upon Israel and Judah for their continual violations of his law. All right, man's, mankind's response to God's holy and righteous law has always been the same as Israel's was at Sinai, to violate it rather than to submit to it in humble obedience. God knew that before he gave his law to Israel through Moses. God knew that. The letters written on tablets of stone by the finger of God were not given to save men from the wrath of God. They were given to prove to men, to every human being, that we are all worthy only of the wrath of God. The response of all humanity to the law of God seals the condemnation of all men and women and children and ensures that the curse of death applies to all. This is what we all deserve. Now, this is not a failure of God's law to do what it was supposed to do. It is a success of God's law to do what it was supposed to do. Listen carefully to what the Apostle Paul says about the Old Covenant in Galatians chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. He says, this is very familiar to many of you, but listen to this carefully. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, 
then righteousness would have indeed been based on law. But the Scripture, the Old Testament law, has shut up all men under sin in order that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. The law didn't fail, beloved. The law succeeded. The glory that inhabited every aspect of the giving of God's law to his people was very great indeed. Everything about the law of Moses revealed God's own character and God's own ways to his creatures. It showed us and it still shows us how God's character and God's ways are put into practice on earth in our relationship with him and with our fellow man. That's why David said, I delight in the law of the Lord. And the law was delivered to man in a time in which God was performing awesome miracles and wonders. The glory of God in the law was very great indeed. But by God's perfect design and intention, the glory of the old covenant written in letters on stone was far less than the glory of the new covenant written in human hearts by the Holy Spirit. The first brought the constant reminder to all that we deserve only the curse of death. The second undoes the curse and gives eternal life. As Paul says in Romans 8, verses 3 and 4, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. He keeps coming back to the spirit. Now again, was it a surprise to God that the law, weak as it was through the flesh, could not make men righteous? Absolutely not. The law displayed the glory of a holy and righteous God by exposing and condemning sin in us. But the law was never intended to produce in us the holiness and righteousness of God. Only the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in the hearts of redeemed human beings accomplishes that display of God's glory. The lesser glory of the law was by God's own perfect design. The end point of God's glorious plan of redemption is the Spirit of God in man by the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ alone. In verses 9 and 10, Paul continues this development of the lesser glory of the Old Covenant and the greater glory of the New Covenant ministry by presenting a second point of contrast between the two glories. He says, if the ministry of condemnation had glory, how much more does the ministry of righteousness abound 
in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. He uses the word glory three times in one verse there. <laughs> Paul is effusive in his description of the greater glory of the new covenant here. The word abound means to go beyond. The word translated surpasses means to hyperabound, to go way beyond. In verse 10, Paul says, the glory of our ministry under the new covenant so far exceeds the glory of the old covenant ministry that it is as if the old had no glory at all. Now let me ask you, if you walk outside at noon on a summer day in Richardson, Texas and look up at the sky, how many stars can you spot? Actually one. We call it the sun. <laughs> Trick question. And you can't even look directly at that star in a cloudless noonday without blinding yourself. How does that light compare with the light of the brightest star that you can spot on a cloudless night? Anybody know what the name of that star is, by the way? It's called Sirius. The greater makes the lesser seem insignificant by comparison, right? Now, if that contrast is great, the contrast that Paul is pointing out here is infinitely greater. Moses and the Old Testament prophets that God raised up after Moses were commissioned by God with a ministry of condemnation. Paul and Timothy and Silas and Titus and you and I have been commissioned by God with the ministry of righteousness. The ministry of the law proves to sinners that they desperately need saving. The ministry of the Spirit through every child of God who proclaims and adorns the gospel, that ministry transforms the hearts of sinners to receive the one and only Savior and to be forever brought into union with Christ. The glory of God is displayed through the law's exposure and condemnation of every person's sin, but the glory of God is super abundantly displayed through the Holy Spirit's transformation of a sinner's heart that turns him or her into a living, breathing showcase for the glory of God on earth. I'm going to repeat that in different words because I don't want us to miss that, that contrast. This is, this is at the center of what Paul is talking about. The law proves human beings to be incapable of righteousness. That glorifies God. The Spirit of grace makes human beings righteous. That glorifies God super abundantly. In verses 11 to 16, Paul presents the third and final contrast between the glory of the Old Covenant ministry and the glory of our New Covenant ministry. Verse 11 says, For if that which fades away was with glory, how much more that remains, that which remains is in glory. Paul's saying that the glory of God that's displayed through the ministry of the Old Covenant fades away. 
but the glory of God that's displayed in our ministry, the ministry of the new covenant by the work of the indwelling Holy Spirit does not fade away. It remains. In fact, as Paul is about to explain, it gets greater and greater from one glory to the next, from one manifestation of God's glory through these vessels to the next. Now, stick with me. What, what Paul is setting before us at, here in the last part of this passage is one of the most beautiful facets of our salvation that we will ever behold. To understand this third contrast, we have to look at what Paul said before this verse and at what he says after it. Verse 11, I mean. I intentionally avoided talking about part of verse 7 when we first went, went by it so that I could come back to it right here. In verse 7, Paul says, but if the ministry of death engraved in letters uh, and letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? Paul's pointing us back now to the last part of Exodus chapter 34. The second time Moses came down from the top of Mount Sinai, carrying the second set of tablets of the Ten Commandments engraved by the finger of God, Moses was not aware when he came back into the camp that the skin of his face shone brightly because of the glory of the one with whom he had just met at the top of the mountain. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw the light of God's glory shining from Moses' face, they were afraid to come near him. But Moses commanded them to come and to listen to him as he passed on to them all of the detail of the law that God had spent that time revealing to him. Now please get this. When Moses finished speaking to the Israelites, passing on to them what God had told them to give to them, that's when he put the veil over his face. Just read it. Each time Moses went in to speak with God after that and then to pass along to the people what God gave him to give to them, Moses would remove the veil while he went in and talked with God and he would leave the veil off while he passed along to the people what God had said. And then he would put the veil back down. Each time the people would quote this is Exodus 34, 35. They would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. So Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in again to speak with God. Now, it's amazing how easy it is to miss what's going on here. And, and a lot of commentators miss it. I was one of them. I was one of the people who missed this for many years. And the one who sorted me out was Bob Deffenbaugh many years ago, actually. He made me look again, and what it was saying was pretty clear. The common misunderstanding is that Moses put a veil over his face to protect the Israelites from seeing the glory of God shining forth from his face, because looking directly on that glory would have harmed them. It's sort of like you know what went on when you couldn't priests couldn't walk right into the holy of holies in the in the tabernacle of the temple without the smoke of the incense going up in front of him because if he looked right at the glory of God he would drop dead that's not this that is not this 
Exodus 34 says very clearly that Moses removed the veil from his face each time he met with God and received revelation from God to pass to God's people. And that veil stayed removed until after Moses had said to them all that God commissioned him to say. The reason for the veil was not to protect them from seeing the glory of God manifested through a man, Moses. It was to keep them from seeing that glory fading away. Paul does say here in 2 Corinthians that the Israelites, quote, could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face. But that was because of a different veil, the veil over their hearts, not the veil on Moses' face. The light that shone from Moses' face frightened them, so they diverted their eyes while Moses told them the words that God had given them, but Moses wouldn't let them turn away. They, they had to stand there. Some of them were looking up and seeing that, that glory. Please get this. Paul attributes their inability to look directly at the face of Moses, not to the veil over Moses' face, but to the veil that was over their own hearts. The veil over their hearts made even the limited display of God's glory through Moses unbearable to them because it was supposed to. Paul said that that veil over the hearts of his beloved fellow Jews remained even in his, his own day. He says that that veil, the veil that hides from unbelievers the light of the glory of God, gets lifted, quote, whenever a man turns to the Lord. Now I'll say it one more time because I'd like to repeat myself. The veil over Moses' face was not to shield the Israelites from the glory of God that was reflected from Moses' face. If it was, Moses would have put the veil over his face as soon as he came out of the tent of meeting or down from the mountain after speaking with God. Here in 2 Corinthians 3.13, Paul says that the purpose of Moses' veil was that the sons of Israel might not look intently at the end of what was fading away. Are you with me? Why is that important? Why did Moses not veil his face to hide the brightest representation of the glory of God that, that shone from his face right after he came out from the presence of God, but he did veil his face to hide the fading of that glory. I believe the answer becomes clear as we keep reading. And I believe that this goes right back to the purpose of the law that we already talked about. The purpose of the law of God through Moses, delivered through Moses, was to display the holy and righteous character of God and thereby to convict sinners of their sinfulness, of their inability to meet God's righteous standard so that they would look to God to save them. The brighter, the brighter and more accurate the manifestation of God's glory, the greater the humiliation of sinners. Each time Moses came out from the presence of God to pass along to Israel more of the perfect law that he had received directly from God, God intended for the Israelites to see the brightest and fullest representation of his own glory reflected through Moses so that as he proclaimed God's law to them, they would be bowed down in humility and shame. The writer of Hebrews says in the first few verses of that book, we talked about this morning, 
that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. He's not the reflection of God's glory. He is the first person radiance of God's glory. As the human mediator of God's revelation to, to God's people, Moses was a type. He was a foreshadowing of Jesus. In effect, when Moses came out from meeting with God, his face reflected the glory of God. But the light of God's glory didn't originate in Moses as it does in Jesus. And it didn't remain in Moses. But beloved, it does remain in us. It does remain in us. We who have been brought into eternal union with Jesus have been made more than a reflection of the glory of God. We have been made bearers of the glory of God through the indwelling Holy Spirit. The light of the glory of God in us does not fade. Instead, Paul says it increases from glory to glory. Jesus exhorted his disciples not to hide their light under a bushel, but to let it shine brightly for all to see. And once those same disciples received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, that light, His light, took up residence in them. Every person who trusts in Jesus since that day has that same light abiding in Him or her, in the person of the Holy Spirit. In the last two verses of 2 Corinthians 3, Paul says, Now, the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. We all, that means all who have the indwelling Holy Spirit, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of God. Now, when you look in a mirror, whose face do you see? It's not a trick question. <laughs> when I look in the mirror, I see my face. And you see yours when you look in the mirror. Paul's saying, it is you and I who belong to Christ, who are being transformed into the same image, the image of Yahweh, from glory to glory, the image of Jesus Christ. You know why God made human beings? To be image bearers of the living God. Do you know that there's one icon, there's one creaturely representation of God that God endorses because He created it? Read Genesis 1. That's us. And ever since the fall, that image was corrupted and distorted and damaged and and very, very poor. But the Lord Jesus Christ restores that image. God has made you and me like Moses. God has made His own glory shine forth from our faces. But the glory that we bear and put on display in this world does not fade like the glory of Moses. The ministry of Moses, the ministry of the Old Covenant, was a ministry of death. Our ministry, the ministry of the new covenant, is the ministry of the Spirit who dwells within us. The ministry of Moses of the old covenant was a ministry of condemnation. Ours is the ministry of righteousness given to God's image bearers.
His was the ministry. Moses' ministry was that of limited and fading glory. Ours is the ministry of the unfading glory of Christ in us. The hope of glory. Moses had to put a veil over his face so the Israelites would not see the glory of God fading away. Paul says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. In this context, I believe he's talking about the liberty to let our light shine to the uttermost. If you, like, like I, am currently enjoying not having to wear a mask over my face, you and I both need to know that God has removed something much more, much more containing and constraining. He has told us to take the veil. It's, he's removed the veil from our faces and he says, shine, shine, shine. The glory of God displayed through these jars of clay is not fading, it's getting brighter and brighter. <laughs> when my mom, my dear mother-in-law, was, uh, was physically fading from Parkinson's and many complications of Parkinson's, I would take her to physical therapy at Landry Center downtown and drive her home, and as we drive home repeatedly on those drives, she'd say, Though my outer man is decaying, my inner man is being renewed day by day. We're going to come to that in the next chapter. Brighter and brighter. Who is adequate for these things, beloved? We are. Not because of anything that comes from us, but because of the Holy Spirit of the living God who dwells within us. God means for you and me who belong to Christ to believe and account as true daily that we have his sufficiency at work continually in us and through us. He put his spirit in us and he is at work in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure, Philippians 2.13. It is he who shines forth the glory of God through these weak and damaged vessels. It is he who is transforming us into the likeness of Christ from one manifestation of his glory to the next. Do we believe this promise? Do you believe this promise? When you and I start believing and acting upon this promise in earnest, we'll stop hiding our light the light of Christ in us from this world, and we'll start confidently, boldly, as Paul exhorts us to, putting that light on display. We'll speak of Christ to all who will listen and to all who won't. To one, we will be an aroma from death to death, and to the other, we will be an aroma from life to life. We'll walk in prayerful dependence on the Holy Spirit who indwells and empowers us to show Christ off we'll know with rock-solid certainty not that God might use us to show Christ to others, but that he absolutely will and does use us to show Christ off to others. When we stop listening to ourselves, when we stop assessing our usefulness as if it had anything to do with our own talents or experience or attractiveness or charm, or anything else, and when we instead trust this glorious, magnificent, 
promise of the Holy Spirit's faithful work in and through us, we will get out of the spectator seats and we'll begin running the race to which God called us. So brothers and sisters, let's do that. Loving Father, thank You for Your precious and magnificent promises again. And thank You for this glorious promise that the light of Your own glory is displayed through us by the, the effective and faithful work of Your Spirit in us. And nobody can take that away from us, Father. That's Your gift to us. Make us faithful, Father. Make us, cause us, work in us, Father, to count this as true and to act on it day by day. We ask this in the name of our incomparable Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.